What's good, dudes? It's your boy, the Carlos Olberg of Just Trying to Be Heard. And this is Charred with the Spokes and Chugs podcast. We're coming at you on November 11th, 2022. This is a fr- the Friday before UFC 281, Israel Asanya versus Alex Pajera. And uh, man, there's so much to talk about. Um, I wanted to do a, an episode just on its own, just for this, because there is so much to talk about technically. And um, to be frank... It, there's a lot of technical shit to talk about that ends up just kind of boiling all the way back down to just the basic of how the matchup works. And that is, is he's better, more technical, should win. Alex has big power and, you know, it's the kind of thing where one wrong, one wrong move and he could put you out. So it's funny, like... For everything that has changed between these fighters, so much of it remains the same from how their first two fights work, as far as just the bigger picture. Um, so, just want to get over that, uh, and we're going to talk a lot about... That's probably going to be the bulk of this episode, is just talking about that matchup, because it is by far the most interesting uh, from a technical perspective. And I'm going to get a lot more into details than I normally do. It's, you know, normally I just kind of give generalities and, like, opinion and opinion piece type stuff. But this time I actually I want to talk about the technical aspects of the fight because I think that's what really, like, that's what makes it more than just the UFC pushed a guy for a story. The actual technical aspects of the fight do matter and um, are genuinely cool. Also, I realized for some reason my recording program decided to switch from my microphone to the PC's mic, and that's why my audio quality on the last episode is so trash. So my apologies for that. Um, I realize not a lot of people are probably going to listen to it anyway because they were expecting the preview to 281, which is what this one is. Um, But without further ado, let's just jump right into it because there's a lot to talk about and it's very interesting. And we're going to start all the way at the very beginning between these two, and that is the first fight between Izzy and, and Alex. What makes this fight especially interesting with fresh eyes going back to it is just how differently Israel used to fight, especially in kickboxing, because he didn't have to worry about the takedown or worry about uh, clinch fighting, because in kick in the promotion he was fighting in, you couldn't clinch fight any more than like maybe throw a knee to the body or something like is very very much like boxing style the clinch gets broken up very quickly so when you're not worried about that and you're not worried about takedowns and things like that you have a lot more freedom to use your hands and a lot more freedom to not worry about distance management as much at least not as much as he does now and you can see that in his fight style is he's a lot more works a lot more with his hands and a lot less with the leg kicks and things that keep him at distance, a lot fewer teeps, uh, stuff like that. He uses his hands a lot more. Alex Pajera's style, if you watch it, if you watch his fights then and you watch his fights now, there isn't nearly as big of a difference. In the first fight between them, Izzy primarily, the success he found was when he was able to stifle Alex's counter-striking with volume and pressure. Where Alex, at the time, would put up a double forearms guard, like high guard, and would hold it until his opponent would stop striking and then he would start throwing back. 
And the main reason this worked for Izzy is if he could keep Alex on the back foot with the high guard up, anytime Alex would counter and strike back, he would have to move from the high guard to chamber shots because Alex loads up so much. If Alex was going to throw a counter left hand, which is his, you know, his signature strike, um, that is an extremely good, it's one of the best left hand, like left hooks, counter left, you know, counter left lead hooks. One of the best ones you'll see in combat sports. It's technically perfect and he gets really good steam on it and really quickly without having to load up a ton, depending on the situation, because you'll often see him throw a body kick with his right le- body or leg kick with his right leg. And then as he brings the leg back, he pivots. And um, as his hips shift, he puts that steam on the tight hook and will oftentimes catch guys while they're on the way in trying to close dif- distance after the kick. I highly, highly recommend. I talk about him all the time just because um, he's inc- one of my favorite analysts. I highly recommend going to fightprimer.com and looking at um, the articles written by Jack Slack about both Pejera and Israel leading up to this. Um, he goes very much into depth on how Pejera's left hook works and why it's so good. But basically, to stifle that weapon and prevent it from being as, as effective, Israel, in the first fight, pressured really hard and threw a lot of volume to keep Pajara's high guard up, so that when he did try to load up hook, counter hooks or counter straights, it would take him long, uh, you know, to use a fighting game term, a few extra frames before the strike came out. And thus, Izzy was able to see them coming and be able to use his head movement and his lean backs and things like that. Uh, to avoid them because Izzy, even then, was not a very guard-heavy guy. He wouldn't really block strikes much. He primarily would avoid strikes just like he does now. But there's another thing that you saw a lot more of him using then. He still does it from time to time now, but a lot more of things you saw him doing then is he would shoulder roll a lot, very boxing style. And um, not only would he shoulder roll a lot, he would actually use the shoulder roll from both stances and it's very rare you'll see a guy shoulder roll in both stances and have it be, have it look as good and be as effective from both stances. Um, Izzy's head movement non-traditional guard has is incredibly good. Um, it's super super effective, and he was doing clever things like um, I forget what round it is, but. One of the one of the kicks that Pehera throws and misses, where Izzy steps back um, and whiffs, when he misses that body kick and Alex when Alex misses that body kick and then spins around the follow through to reset, which you'll see it all the time in all sorts of combat sports. Instead of throwing the kick and then bringing it back in the same back in the opposite direction, they'll throw the kick and if it misses, they'll just go ahead and spin the spin the rest of the way through to reset. While Alex is spinning the rest of the way through and turns his head away, Izzy switches stances while Alex isn't looking. And it's it may not seem like much, but little things like that just continue to add more layers and more things for your opponent to think about. Um, and it's the clever timing of that where Alex throws the kick, misses, resets his stance, and then he may not even notice that Izzy has switched stances in the middle of it. Um, There are just clever things that you see him doing even back then. Um, Ultimately, 
Alex is at his most effective in the first round of that match, where his shots have the most pop, and Izzy hasn't learned Alex's counters yet, and hasn't started pouring on the offense to get Alex to shell up. Um, and then about a third of the way into the third round of that fight, uh, Alex is gassing and is slowing down. And he actually sets down the double forearms guard. He's not holding the up anymore. And then he's just trying to raw counter every time he eats a strike, just leaning on his toughness. And then um, ultimately, Pajera won on the books, but it's a pretty clear, I'll be honest, I think it's a pretty clear robbery, that first fight. Um, I don't know what the judges were looking at, because ultimately, I don't know if they just put more weight on Pajera landing some body kicks, but... um, at the end of the day, Izzy outstruck him significantly, and uh, most of the blows that Alex landed on Izzy in that first fight were glancing because Izzy was moving his head out of the way. Um, but then the second fight is where things get interesting. Um, because both of them change to a degree. Uh, Izzy starts framing a lot more. And starts kind of pivoting, he starts laterally pivoting around Alex while framing off of his guard. And that's where he's able to, and you'll see Izzy doing that in MMA a ton right now. Uh, over his last bunch of fights in MMA is he'll frame off the guard and then slot that straight right through either to the side to hit the ear or straight through the center of the guard. And he'll use his frame as like a, um, he'll use his frame to either pull the guard aside or just to measure, um, to measure his distance and to kind of place his opponent. Um, he starts doing the frame. He starts framing a lot more, and is a lot more right hand heavy. And then towards the end of the second round, Izzy ends up rocking Alex hard as Alex is trying to circle out, and Izzy was able to is able to frame and kind of catch him while he's trying to pivot out, and uh, rocks him pretty hard, and then. It results in a standing eight count before the fight continues, and then Alex just like rushes in and tries and forces a bunch of clinches to burn the clock before the break in between rounds. And then after they come back out for the third round, Alex does, and this I have massive respect for him. And what really made that fight turn around is Alex comes out knowing he's down two rounds. And knowing that if things keep going the same way they're going, he's gonna get finished. Or he's just going to lose. And he comes out with full aggression, full recklessness, and does what I always think fighters should do when they're in this situation where you know you're down two rounds and you know you're going to either lose by decision or knockout. And just say, fuck it, might as well risk the KO and just get reckless and try to make something happen because I'm going to lose either way. And Alex comes out with a ton of aggression and really starts crowding Izzy and then one of their exchange one of their exchanges Izzy stays in the pocket just a little bit too long and Alex catches him with he kind of crowds him but doesn't quite get to clinch distance and then as he kind of he kind of leans back to his back foot and just catches Izzy with a really tight quick left hand that if you're watching live you'd probably would have missed it um and go oh shit what did he land um and that sparks izzy just puts him out and that's the end of that fight and um 
it that and that's what makes this matchup so interesting because Izzy has been a more technical was a more technical fighter then and was generally kind of better everywhere but Alex has that power and he power and toughness but most importantly the grit and resolve to take risks he is more willing to take risks than Izzy is and he can do that because he trusts in his toughness and I feel he's just just that little bit of crazy that you want to see out of fighters that little bit of Charles Oliveira you know, just like, I'm just going to wade into the fire and see what happens sort of attitude. But Alex only really gets there when he needs to. Like he did against, um, like he did against Bruno Silva. But yeah, like those two fights, they're, they're interesting, but they don't tell the whole story. So what I decided to do is I wanted to look at some significant fights in, in both of their careers since they got to the UFC, because... Izzy has had a ton of time in the UFC to mature, and you see him fighting a lot differently now than he did when he first came in. Um, and then Alex, we haven't had a ton of footage on him in the UFC to get a good bearing of what he really is right now and what he has become. But um, we're gonna go. We're gonna talk about two of them for Alex. So. Alex has earned, quote, quote unquote, earned his title shot by sparking Sean Strickland. And the issue, the thing about that fight is the way Sean Strickland fights is exactly the, it's, it's one of those things where like, when Conor McGregor beat Donald Cerrone, it was one of those situations where there were people going, oh, it was a robbery, or oh, it was staged, or or not robbery, but like people were like, oh, it was staged, or it was fixed, or like all these other things, and you go, no, Donald Cerrone is just the absolute picture-perfect best matchup possible to make Conor McGregor look good, because Donald does bad against straight-line striking, bad against heavy pressure in the first round, and he has his issues with southpaws. And all these factors together prove to be, as well as Donald does genuinely get very nervous when the, when the big lights are on. And so all of those factors together made Donald the perfect showcase to get Connor jumped back into the UFC and get back into the potential title shot. Um, and this is a very much a similar situation matchmaking wise with Alex Pajera versus Sean Strickland, because Sean Strickland is the picture-perfect fighter to have a flashy knockout against if you are if you have a left hook like Alex does. Because Sean Strickland's strange, unorthodox style, the issue with it is... Well, the issue with his fight against Pajera is he, he likes to hand fight with both hands. Instead of what most fighters do is they'll be a little more bladed and they'll hand fight with their lead hand, with the jabbing hand. You'll you'll jab, you'll hook, you'll hand fight, and you'll um, and you'll try to like catch strikes with it and things like that. Sean Strickland squares his shoulders and then does that with both hands, and does it with his right being his his rear hand a lot. And when he does it, he almost throw he almost like extends his arm like a slow jab when he reaches it out to kind of catch strikes. And 
if you watch that fight with Pejera and Strickland, you see Strickland doing that, and he almost does it with a, on a rhythm when he reaches his right hand out with his hand open to catch strikes. He'll almost do it on a rhythm as he's stepping. And all it took was Alex just to time one because when Strickland extends his arm like that, he's completely open for a left hook. And Alex just waited for the distance to be right. So he didn't have to make a big step in before throwing the left hook and just waited for Sean. Like you can watch it in slow motion. The second Sean's hand starts to come forward with his hand open, Alex just catches him with the left and puts him down. And it's, it's one of those things where like Strickland's rank position in the rankings was the absolute perfect opportunity to get Alex to this position for the title shot without necessarily having to go through all of the people that are really going to be a hard time for him, like a Robert Whitaker or a, a Marvin Vittori or somebody like that that's going to really test his overall game. Because if you move on from that Strickland fight, which is all most people want to focus on, if you move on from that and you watch the Bruno Silva fight, that tells you a lot more about what Alex Pajera is now than the Strickland fight or even the Bukowskis fight. Or sorry, the Michelitis fight, uh, Andreas Michelitis. Because um, that fight is simply... The Michelitis fight is, is doesn't tell you much because it's simply he pieces up Andres on the feet, Michelitis grabs him, takes him down, is able to grapple him well. And then in the second round, Alex does what so many guys coming from Thai or kickboxing or whatever do when they've been wrestled for the first round is they go, okay, got to come out with a big flying knee or something of that nature. And then sure enough, that's exactly what he does. And then it puts out and he gets the KO win and people then go like, oh, okay, that's fine. He can take care of himself. But it's the Bruno Silva fight that is the real story about if you want to know who Alex Pajera is as a fighter right now, the Bruno Silva fight is a really good way to go to find out. Because Bruno Silva showed that Alex is still very hittable. He doesn't move his head offline very much. Um, he still he doesn't use the double forearms guard very much anymore. But he kind of he tries to to reach and post and he tries to he really does a lot more of like what Izzy does now with the with the hand posting and the the reaching um, and trying to get wrist control. That's one of the main reasons that you'll see Izzy and Alex and fighters like that um, when they transition to MMA not using the high guard as often and instead choose to try and hand fight more. And it's simply because the gloves allow you to grab wrists. Um, they allow you to get wrist control. You know, they allow you to just achieve a lot more control. So it becomes significantly more worth it to reach and try to go for wrist control and do those sort of things. So Alex in the Bruno Silva fight does that a lot more. Um, but he's still very hittable. His head is still on center line. And he also is still very vulnerable to leg leg kicks. Uh, Bruno Silva kicks him in the leg a ton, and he doesn't really check very many of them. Um, that's something that wasn't a massive threat 
from Izzy in either of their fights in kickboxing. Um, Izzy was more using his hands more uh, heavily. Alex is still lacking in urgency in the clinch. When he clinched up with Bruno Silva for the first two rounds, he would not throw very much. Um, still having those tendencies to kind of wait it out um, as you would if you were still in kickboxing. Um, towards the end of the third round, clearly Glover Teixeira was in his ear between rounds um, and really got him to start throwing more knees and more elbows and trying to like make make better use of the clinch. Um, he was still getting caught when they would break because Bruno would throw off the clinch breaks. Um, and towards the end of the second round, Alex started slowing a little bit and he ate a lot of shots that hurt him until of course Bruno Silva slipped. Uh, and instead of trying to get back up, he just laid back to guard and played it safe for the last of that round. And then in the third round, Alex, for all of Alex's faults as far as having a little bit of a gassing issue, he does recover well between rounds. Um, if he's gassed at the end of a round, you can't count on him coming off the stool still gassed. Um, he, can, he may come off the stool and still be able to go pretty hard for the next three minutes. Um, and Bruno Silva, in an effort to try and put Alex out after hurting him towards the end of the second, ended up gassing himself out. And the, the last of that fight was just Alex putting on a show. Um, made a massive difference um, but that fight definitely shows a lot of Alex's defensive gaps, defensive holes and that um, he really does need his power and if, and while Izzy is not the most durable guy in the world he Alex has to catch him clean to be able to put him out again and um it's going to be hard to say if that can happen or not. Because Izzy has only gotten better defensively. And we're going to talk about that. Because now I've gone through the UFC fights that Alex has had, which is not many. And now let's talk about Izzy and how he has changed since those fights with Alex way back in kickboxing. Because Izzy has changed dramatically. I'm going to focus on the Brad Tavares fight because it's relatively early in Izzy's career, but not at the very beginning for the UFC. And Brad Tavares made him have to really dig deep and kind of have a somewhat similar fight to how Alex's fight with Bruno Silva was. Um, but it shows a dramatic difference in how Izzy fights versus how he did when he fought Alex where Alex versus Bruno Silva, Alex still looks like the same guy for the most part. Izzy versus Brad, Izzy looks like a very different fighter. And while he still does he still does lean backs and a lot of head movement as defense and f does a lot of framing, uh, there's a significant increase in his feints and in the quality of his feints. Like when he hip feints, it's a lot more convincing and he does them a lot more often. And he also staggers his timing a lot more, where Izzy in the Brad Tavares fight and since, when he goes to throw a kick, oftentimes he will hip faint, and then as you, the reaction begins, then he'll throw the real strike. Like, about half of his leg kicks landed on Brad, 
he will hip faint. He'll hip faint, pause, then let the kick whip out because Brad has gone to check it and then back to his stance again. Um, it's things like that as well as just varying up his strikes more. It actually makes his defense better by just stifling his opponent's offense by giving them more things to think about. Uh, as well as just he focuses more on his leg kicks. Um, his offensive trickery, as well as the leg kicks, it it makes what defense he already have has significantly more effective. Um, he kind of matured into being a more defensive fighter overall rather than just being a good fighter with good defense. He became more of a defensive fighter as a total package. Um, Izzy's leg kicks have kind of been his primary weapon since the move to MMA. And it keep, mainly because it keeps him safer from grappling to stay at that kind of distance, especially when he's kicking towards towards the calf or the kind of the top of the calf knee area, which is where you see him kicking Romero or uh, see, see him kicking Paulo Costa in their fight. I mean, that whole fight, the, the story of that fight is the leg kick. Like, regardless of the knockout uh, being that like kind of shovely like left left hook, the main story of that fight is removing Costa's mobility with the leg kick because he landed it so accurately so many times to just the very top of Costa's calf kind of by the knee um kind of the back of the knee and um being able to do that and be able to to kick that effectively from that kind of distance and make it more of a primary part of his game keeps him a lot safer from both grappling and heavy-handed punchers. And um, that's something that I feel he's probably going to lean on significantly against Alex in this fight. As that has become such a primary tool of his. And I would not be surprised to see him just try to do the same game that he's been playing against Cannoneer and against Romero and against Costa is that he'll he'll primarily focus on the leg kick and keeping distance and circling and uh, stifling his opponent's offense. Um, I have a suspicion. I'm ultimately I'm picking Izzy. Now this is with the massive caveat that there is always a chance that Izzy just gets caught with something because Alex does have that power and he has if he can set it up has that accuracy. And every last thing I've said comes with that caveat of you can never count on this kind of matchup, but you always have to look at it when you have a matchup of big puncher versus technically better fighter. And sometimes it's sometimes the guy who's better just gets caught and you can never count on it. You can never assume it, but it happens. And you look at fights like the Michael Chandler versus Dan Hooker fight. Dan Hooker is probably a technically better striker than Michael Chandler, but Michael Chandler is a big hitter and managed to get to him early. And it's it's that kind of a feeling I get from this matchup between Izzy and, and Pejera. And I can't shake that feeling of it is a massive uphill battle for Alex to try and make this happen against Izzy. Just because Izzy has 
matured so much since his kickboxing run as a defensive fighter and being able to deal with other big long guys like like Jared Cannonier is and being able to deal with people blitzing in because you saw the main reason the the main reason he got KO'd by Alex in their second fight was Izzy didn't have as much capability to deal with the blitz and deal with the heavy the heavy recklessness that Alex had in the third round of that second fight whereas Izzy in the Gastelum fight learned a lot about dealing with a blitzer and about dealing with what if a guy doesn't just jump forward throw a couple strikes what if the guy continues moving forward and goes, yeah, you can lean back, but then I'll still hit you because I'm still moving forward. Or, yeah, you can lean back, but then I'll hit you in the body. Things like that. Those lessons are character changing for Israel that he learned in the Gastelum fight. As well as learning how to deal with... The Gastelum fight is what prepared him to fight Robert Whitaker in the first fight with Whitaker. Because Whitaker came in trying to do what Gastelum did... And Whitaker had just didn't have the same kind of durability that Gastelum had because he had just fought 10 rounds with Yoel Romero, basically punching a piece of metal. Um, like, man, I could go on and on about the Whitaker-Romero fights. It is... Romero is a force of nature. And the fact that Whitaker was able to do what he did when zero other people have ever been able to do that and survive... It definitely left its mark physically on Robert Whitaker, and um, his durability was definitely not going to be able to do what Gastelum did, especially after Izzy learned those lessons from the Gastelum fight on being able to counter those kind of blitzes and that kind of heavy pressure. So I I have a strong suspicion that Izzy is is. That Izzy is properly equipped to deal with um, what Alex is right now. And uh, I don't think it'll be an uninteresting fight. I think Pajara has that kind of recklessness that if if Izzy wins the first three rounds, that Alex is going to come out like a banshee and really mix things up and make things interesting. And, and who knows? He may get the KO. It's, it's one of those fights where, like, I have a pick. But I would never bet money on this shit because it is way too, like, at the end of the day, there's way too many question marks. And it's way, way too close to be like, because the thing is, it's not like I'm talking about some kind of massive technical difference. I'm not talking about some massive gap. Like, Alex is still a very high level kickboxer and very much a tough ass dude to deal with for Izzy in this fight. But even said there's enough of a gap technically that i'm gonna pick izzy but not without its caveats of like but who the fuck knows some wild shit can and probably will happen whether it ends up with izzy losing because of said wild shit i highly suspect there's gonna be some wild shit and another factor of course is is alex going to gas we know Izzy's not, but is Alex going to gas? Because he's he's done it before. There's just too many factors to make me want to pick Alex. But man, I'm excited for this fight. 
It's it's a hype one. Well, we spent man, we spent about a half hour on that thing, maybe a little bit more. And let's go ahead and talk about the rest of these. It's going to be a little bit of a shorter one. It's probably going to be under an hour, but hey, two episodes this week. Why not? Um, but we're going to move on to the next fight. Carla Esparza versus, I guess it's Zhang Wei Li now. I guess we flipped it. That's the more traditional way to say it. I know originally we all said Wei Li Zhang. I think that flows better, but I guess it's Zhang Wei Li. So that's what we're going to say. Um it's a weird one because Carla Esparza won the belt because Rose decided to do nothing. And Rose decided to listen to her corner, who was telling her to do nothing. And was basically saying, well, Carla can't do anything, so you're winning. And the problem is, what little stuff Carla was actually managing to touch Rose with just was more stuff than what Rose did. And the craziest part is towards the end of the fight when Rose actually decided to try to do something and when some grappling happened, it was like, Oh, well you were better anyway. Like you could have just made a fight happen and won instead of allowing Carla to kind of allowing Carla to win via inactivity. I hate that fight so much. It's just us. It's, It's an example of how fighting is like 80% mental. Some might say more. It may be 95% mental. I'm going to say 80. But that fight is a prime example of fighting being massively mental. Where Rose had every tool she needed. Including from superior striking to grappling to probably toughness. She had every tool she could have possibly needed at her disposal to win that fight handily and made herself look good and look like a dominant champion. And instead, she chose to desperately avoid Carla's grappling and to desperately avoid anything Carla was doing and just try to land the occasional leg kick or the occasional jab and ultimately just didn't do enough. And it's... It's... Very, very rare, if ever, you see a champion effectively give up their belt by doing nothing. Um, so it's it's one of those situations where it's like I have a hard time blaming Carla because she wasn't the one um, trying to prevent the fight from happening. But at the same time, it also feels very unearned because... Here we have Zhang, who is a dominant physical force that just, her her losses mainly come from bad decision making. And, for example, in the last fight with the Ro- in the Rose rematch uh, between Zhang Weili and Rose Namajunas, that rematch, she just allowed Rose to hold her on the ground and made poor decisions as far as just not having the urgency to scramble and get back up and allowing that allowing rose to hold those positions despite being you know the physically in superior fighter um 
So seeing that fight now between Zhang and Carla is very much the like, okay, is Zhang going to get taken down? And if she is, what's she going to do? Is she going to allow Carla to hold her down? Or is she going to scramble to her feet and desperately try to keep things standing, which she has the strength and the physical imposingness to do? And as we saw through her fights with both, as we saw in her fight with Joanna, the first time, Whaley has the physicality and the cardio to be able to just go hard for 25 minutes. So it's it's one of those things where like you have to pick Zhang um, just on intangibles, on both the physical power, better striking, and um, just being an absolute imposing force. But then you have to think, okay, but is she going to make the correct decisions and is she going to allow herself to be controlled on the ground? And you might think, oh, well, she's training with Cejudo now. And you go, well, she was training with Cejudo uh, leading up to the Rose rematch. or to the Rose rematch. Now, she wasn't with him for terribly long, but still, you, you have to expect that they've been training a lot of takedown defense and a lot of uh, counter-wrestling and honestly defending against panic shots. Because that is what's most likely to happen is that Wei Li is going to pressure and throw heavy and then Carla will throw panic shots. And the biggest question is, are those panic shots going to work? And when they and if they do, is are they going to be effective enough that Wei Li will get more tired than Carla will? Because Carla has a history of gassing too. So if Carla can hold Whaley down and grapple her, who's going to get tired first? Because we know Whaley won't get tired from stand and bang, but maybe she'll get tired if she has to keep getting up from from bottom. Um, you gotta take you gotta take Zhang in this thing, but um, I suspect it may not be as it'll either be an instant sparking like it was with Zhang versus um, Jessica Andrade. Or it's going to be a bit of an action fight followed by like a late round finish by Zhang. That's my ex- expectation. Um, but who knows? It's fighting. Crazy shit happens. Carla might be able to just take her down and hold her down every round. Crazier things have happened. Like um, everything Michael Chandler does. <laughs> uh, Chandler Poirier is an action fight that ever it's the action fight for just it's the fight for the just bleed gods much like his much like Chandler's fight with Justin Gaethje was and but even better than that because I expected Gaethje to be able to knock Chandler out and he didn't and it ended up being a three round crazy war and I suspect the same will be the case with Dustin here where Dustin doesn't hit quite as hard as Gaethje but is every bit as durable and Chandler has clearly in his at his as he's gotten older he doesn't want to try and grind people out like he did in Bellator because I don't think he can keep it up without getting tired his in Bellator his safety mechanism was okay I'm losing on the feet 
time for go- to go for takedowns and just press dudes against the fence and really just grind them out wrestler style. And it worked because his opponents would get tired faster than him. Not that he didn't get tired, because he did, but he was able to make his opponents get tired faster than him. I don't believe that is the case anymore. I don't think he has that stamina anymore at, I think, 38 years old he is now. Um, and still, like, crazy jacked and who knows what kind of uh, supplements he's doing. Oh, he's, thir- he's 36. He's not quite that old, but still. Um, he's always been a very explosive, chaotic fighter. and uh, But I just don't think he can lean on that wrestling anymore without getting tired. So he's decided he's just going to resolve himself to just be a stand-and-bang guy. And I have a lot of respect for that. He's going to come in and he's going to come in throwing heavy and in a desperate moment he may shoot and as we know Dustin he's not the greatest for with takedown defense and he may just jump the ghillie he may be silly and jump the ghillie uh, but Michael Chandler is still capable of ridiculous feats of athleticism and this one is it's one of those ones where you go Chandler almost knocks out pretty much everybody he fights in the first round. Like, he blasted Benson Henderson in the first round. And then he blasted Dan Hooker in the first round. And then he blasted Charles Oliveira in the first round, but couldn't quite get him out of there. And then got left hooked by Charles. And then he fought Justin Gaethje and almost KO'd Justin Gaethje in their fight in the first round. And then couldn't get him out of there. And then they had a crazy war instead of Chandler then crumbling like he did with Oliveira. Um, Then he fought Tony Ferguson. And Tony actually did pretty well against him. But then uh, on stray, you know, one of those unexpected, not stray shots, but one of those like, oh, fuck, that worked sort of strikes um, with that front kick worked against Tony. And it's just one of those things where you go, you see that fight, you see Dustin versus Michael Chandler, and you go, well, Dustin should win, but is Chandler just going to come out and knock him out? And you go, mm-hmm, maybe. <laughs> like, there's no certainty when it comes to a Michael Chandler fight, especially now in this time in this time in his career. There is no certainty whatsoever. Where like, could he if he fought Islam? Could he knock him out? Mm-hmm. Probably. Will it happen? Eh, probably less than fifty percent chance, but who knows? Like, it's he's one of those guys where you're excited to watch him fight because he's just such a balls to the wall willing to just full chaos i'm gonna throw everything in the kitchen sink at this dude in the first round and if it works awesome if it doesn't meh whatever i was exciting michael chandler fights like he's drag racing a v8 swapped mini cooper yeah you might win or you might die but regardless of what happens it's gonna be exciting um Chris Gutierrez versus Frankie Edgar. Um, I really, really hope this isn't a glue factory fight. Um, 
it's definitely a shame that the UFC have decided to book Frankie against a young up-and-coming contender guy sort of guy instead of an old name like himself like Dominic Cruz or someone um even though I feel this fight is probably more winnable for him than a fight with Dominic Cruz um it's just one of those ones where you go like man Frankie this is Frankie's already said this is a retirement fight and you just want you just want him to have a good last hurrah to retire off of and to look good and so that we can wash the taste out of our mouths of those two knockouts <sighs> but at least you can get some mild encouragement by watching the first two rounds of Frankie versus uh, Cheeto just because it shows you that he still has good wrestling and he still um, knows how to mix it up and he can be effective that way and um, if if he can fight I mean, his fight with Pedro Munoz is a great example where if he's not fighting a really explosive um, sort of guy that can really surprise you and really, like, hit you with big pop, if he's fighting a guy that's, like, well, along the lines of a Pedro Munoz that is not going to surprise you with big things or be just a massive physical imposing force like Cheeto Vera was... Um, he may do just fine. Um, Chris Gutierrez, outside of his spinning back fist with the fight versus Dana, he hasn't really had any exciting... He hasn't had any finishes inside the UFC or really excitement within the UFC. He's just very, like, kind of meat, meat and potatoes sort of normal guy. Um, to, be, to be as uninteresting as his fight style is, um, he really is, like... As far as like a, a lower ranked contender that's coming up for Frankie to fight, it's less of a feed him to a young guy than um, a lot of people are thinking. But it's still one of those like, okay, is Frankie like washed washed or is he just washed where he can't handle a top 10 guy? And um, this is going to answer that whether it's sad or cool. <sighs> Dan Herker versus Claudio Puelles. Uh, this is a surprisingly kind piece of matchmaking because it's almost like a tune-up fight, sort of step down in competition for Dan Hooker, um, and really a good way to measure to see if Dan has like fallen off or if he just like has had a bunch of unfortunate losses against top guys. Because it's not like Dan Hooker has been losing against chumps. Like, since his split decision win against Paul Felder, he lost a decision against Dustin, which was a crazy war. He got TKO'd by Michael Chandler, which can happen to anybody, as we know. Um, then he made Nasrat Hakparast look bad. And then got submitted by Islam, which we now know is... I mean, Islam's the champ and is clearly as much of a force as some people are suspecting he would be. And then he made the terrible decision of going down to featherweight and fought... Arnold Allen, who is a top five guy and very fast. And Dan Hooker is already not the fastest guy at lightweight. So it was just, it was not only a bad idea to try to cut more weight, but also just a bad stylistic matchup for him. So I have my hopes that um, 
it's just an unfortunate series of events and not Dan Hooker really falling off. So we'll find out against uh, Claudio because Claudio, is he has decent striking. Um, Jordan Levitt was able to like kind of piece him up a bit um, on the feet, but Claudio's takedowns, he has, he has really good ground game. He has really good opportunistic submission opportunities. Um, he uses the knee bar in clever ways. He uses the knee bar. He uses the knee bar like a lot of modern jujitsu guys do, where he'll he'll kind of uh, he'll go to a knee re- and he'll go to a knee reap like he's gonna do like he's gonna try a heel hook and then he'll pivot more and go for a knee bar. Um, so there's cool things. There's cool things he does. That's why he has two knee bars back to back in the UFC. Um, which is pretty crazy, especially in the modern era, when you know there haven't been there hasn't been a consecutive knee bar since like the early days when that's all dudes knew how to do. Um, submission wise, I mean, Bas Rutten is he'll still when he's announcing for fights like Bas Rutten will still be like roll for the knee bar, but um, Claudio is he's legit, but he's not so like. He's a, he's the kind of guy that Dan Hooker should beat and should be not that terrible of a matchup for him. It's not like putting Dan against like a Moicano or a uh or a Fizeev or somebody like that that's like really on the cusp of the top 15, top 10 and is still a a really hard fight like having Dan Hooker move this far down in competition is ultimately, I think, a really good piece of negotiation on their part as far as management goes, which now he's being managed by... uh, Dan Hooker is no longer managing himself, which he did for a very long time. Um, And the Arnold Allen fight is a great example of the fact that he shouldn't be managing himself. Um, Now it's being done by Eugene Behrman, and I think that's a great way to go because Eugene Behrman... He really does know what's best for his fighters, and I think that's just a great move. And I think clearly this fight is a great piece of negotiation on their part. So it's going to be nice to see if Dan does everything that he should do, keyword here being should, and bounce back and get this like tune-up fight out of the way and really like remind everybody who he is and what he can do. Speaking of run out of Moicano... Uh, or Hanato, because I think he's from, uh, I think he's from Rio area where they do the, the H's for the R's, but, um, Brad Riddell is fighting Hanato Moicano. Should be a fun banger. Um, Moicano showed incredible toughness against RDA, who had a competitive fight. RDA had a competitive fight against Fizeev before getting KO'd, which is more or less the same thing that happened with Riddell when he fought Fizeev, except RDA lost in the fifth. Riddell lost in the third, and so using weird bullshit MMA math, Riddell versus Moicano should be close. And as well, they're just they're both good fighters. They're both exciting, um, and they're at similar points as far as their like quote unquote level and who they've been fighting recently. So it's it's a good piece of matchmaking and should be a fun fight. Dominic Reyes versus Ryan Spann is little more than just a test to see if Reyes can bounce back or if he's like had that sudden turn where he's just washed now, like uh, 
like Tyron Woodley was when he lost, or like when Anderson Silva after he lost to um, Weidman, or Cody Garbrandt is a great example of like Cody Garbrandt went from like looking untouchable to losing against TJ and then just <laughs> washed. Um, although that one's more based on decision making than actual like physical deterioration, and I feel the same is the case with Dominic Reyes, where it's not as though Dominic Reyes's body has given up on him; it's just like he's had a little streak of bad decision making and defensive liabilities, which is kind of what Cody Garbrandt is the same way, where his, his defensive liabilities are what has caused this massive downturn, and we'll see if Dominic Reyes has fixed those problems. And he can deal with Ryan Spann. Aaron Blanchfield versus Molly McCann. Aaron Blanchfield is decent on the feet for a women's flyweight. She doesn't have a lot of pop over her shots, but her jiu-jitsu is legit. And she finished her last opponent with a standing high elbow guillotine. Um, hard to complain about her fighting as a whole. She's kind of what you would expect out of the number 12 flyweight in the UFC. You know, not great, but not like, not trash. Um, and then Molly McCann has just been a force of aggression lately. Um, she's really turned a corner since her last her last loss, and has just been turning up the turning up the aggression, and uh, it's been doing great for her. And um, being as short and as stocky as she is, she's very difficult to take down. So that should work in her favor against Blanchfield. And, uh, you know, she's a lot of fun. You know, Molly McCann's a lot of fun. And I'd love to see the the train keep rolling for her. Um, from a technical perspective, Blanchfield is generally better. But if Molly can make it messy and, like, force her physicality, uh, she's got a great chance of winning on just toughness and grit. Other than that, there's like there's a ton of filler on this card that I don't really care to talk about, at least not get in depth about, so I'm just going to skip it and talk about the last thing that I find interesting on this card, and that's the opener of the early prelim, and that's Carlos Olberg and Nikolai Nigamirianu. And that's because of Carlos's history. Carlos had a really rough start in the UFC, succumbing to nerves very clearly, in his debut and getting KO'd by Kennedy and Jukwu in his debut. Uh, I mean, you watch, watch that fight again and it's very clear that he like the expectations were crazy high because he's from CKB. So the expectations are huge and the bright, it was the first time he had fought under the bright lights and it was an enormous event because it was Jan versus Izzy. Um, and it was just like, what a way to get thrown to the wolves uh, for your first fight in the UFC as far as nerves go. And he clearly like just had a hard time doing anything and committing to anything and just got KO'd by Njukwu. But since he got kind of a layup fight against Fabio Chiron and got a decision win over him, kind of worked through his nerves, helped him a lot. Then he got a first round KO over Tafan Njukwu, which little bit more of a step up and he passed that test with flying colors with a first round KO. And then this fight against Nikolai is going to be a really great indicator of his trajectory moving forward. If he can, you know, 
really be what we would hope he can be in the light heavyweight division and that we can have you know him as a technical a proficient uh guy in the ckb style and have the same kind of success at light heavyweight because light heavyweight is in desperate need of quality quality strikers i mean and people that can just mix it up well because you've got a handful of guys at the very top at light heavy that are awesome and then a lot of just blah so hopefully carlos Alberg can mature into that we'll see um or maybe his modeling career will hold him back and make him fight uh very defensively because he doesn't want to mess up his uh beautiful face I'll be back next week with a recap of everything that happened over this card and possibly a preview of the next one. We'll see. And uh, we'll probably very quickly skim over it because it's a pretty terrible looking card. Lewis versus Spivak. So odds are we'll spend most of the time talking about what happened in UFC 281. And we'll do a little, little preview about um, Lewis Spivak. Um, So... We'll see you next week. Uh, If you would be so graciously inclined, if you've listened this far, it would be incredibly helpful to me if you would spread the word about the podcast and uh, get other people to listen. Because as much as I do mainly do this for myself and because I enjoy doing it, um, it'd be cool to see it get to become something. So without further ado, God bless Michael Chandler, the Chaos Monkey.